It is a beautiful day to be alive, and I'm so glad we have this time together. I'm Sanaa Laybourne. I am a professor, scholar, connector, and avid reader. I've always loved learning about what's happening in our social world and sharing that knowledge, especially over a good cup of coffee. And so here we are. Each week on Let's Grab Coffee, I catch up with experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. Go ahead and grab that cup of coffee and get ready for an engaging and insightful conversation. Growing up here in Memphis, the civil rights movement was always at the forefront of our city's story. After all, it was here that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel. Now at that site sits the National Civil Rights Museum, where you can learn more about key moments in the civil rights movement, like bus boycotts and lunch counter sit-ins. But there are other moments in the civil rights movement that may be less widely known, but key to the movement and still relevant today. In Food Power Politics, The Food Story of the Mississippi Civil Rights Movement, Dr. Bobby J. Smith II details how food was used as a weapon and as a tool of resistance in the Mississippi Delta. Dr. Bobby J. Smith II is an interdisciplinary scholar of the African-American agricultural and food experience. Trained as a sociologist with a background in agricultural economics, Dr. Smith is an assistant professor in the Department of African-American Studies at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign with affiliations in the Department of Food Science and Human Nutrition and the Center for Social and Behavioral Science. His research program and teaching agenda cultivates an intellectual sphere and public space to interpret how Black people build agricultural and food systems amid inequalities that orbit the Black world. Dr. Smith has been awarded fellowships from the American Council of Learned Societies, National Endowment for the Humanities, Center for the Study of Southern Culture at the University of Mississippi, Special Collections and University Archives at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and the Medgar and Murley Evers Institute in partnership with the Mississippi Department of Archives and History, among others. He joins us today. Hi, Bobby. So glad to have you here with us. Glad to be here. Thank you for the opportunity to be a part of this. Absolutely. Well, you know, when I saw this title and look, I'm so happy, you know, we talk about social media, the the pros and the cons, but it was on Twitter or X or or whatever that platform is called (laughs) (laughs) that I saw the tweet about your book. And I was like, oh, my goodness. First of all, how did I not know about this book? And secondly, I have to read it and hopefully have you on the show. And here we are. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Yes, because, you know, something, first of all, I'm a very hungry person. I mean, let's grab coffee, kind of gives you a little hint at it. But in general, I love food, but I love this idea of the food story of the Mississippi Civil Rights Movement. And I'll be honest, I didn't know anything about the food story (laughs) of the Mississippi Civil Rights Movement or really any part of the civil rights movement, other than, of course, we think about, you know, the the lunch counter sit-ins, right, but, right, right. but still the food piece of it isn't really the central story exactly. Um, and so I'm really excited to be able to dive into your research and share it with our listeners today. So again, just thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Glad to be here. Now, I know I didn't know about the food story of the Mississippi Civil Rights Movement, but how did you come to learn about this central struggle for civil rights? Yeah, so I also didn't know about this food story seven years ago when I actually unknowingly started this project. Uh, I was in graduate school, as you know, the graduate school struggled just taking classes, Mm -hmm. learning about sociological theory and development theories and things of that nature. And I remember taking a class on community organizing and development, and we were learning about the uh, particularly the week that I was assigned. So classic graduate seminar class, each week a student takes on a topic. And my week, um, with also with another partner in the class, was about the organizing tradition around the civil rights movement. And we read Charles Payne's seminal book, I've Got the Light of Freedom, about the Mississippi freedom struggle. But Charles Payne takes on the organizing tradition, thinking about how Ella Baker and people like that shaped the Mississippi civil rights movement, particularly in Greenwood, Mississippi, uh, probably probably not too far from Memphis, probably about an hour and a half, two hours from Memphis, south of Memphis. Mm -hmm. So I was reading that book. And at the time I was doing, I knew that I wanted to do food 
in my dissertation, something around food injustice and food and race. And I was also doing some, so I was a grad student by day, but activist by night. So I was doing food activism, also working with Black Lives Matter um, in Ithaca, New York, um, where I was in graduate school at Cornell. So I was reading through the, 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 the book and I remember my, what eventually became my advisor, he was saying, every time you read books, particularly in his classes, he was teaching it, he would always say, make sure that you are thinking about your own project. So I'm reading through Charles Payne's piece, looking for food. So I'm literally like, where's the food at? So chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, I'm just reading. And Charles Payne's book is like over 400 pages. So I'm reading it. And then I get to chapter five. And I remember the page number. It was page 158 in the 2007 edition. And, <laughs> and in the and on that page, he started talking about how food, essentially he was talking about how food was used as a form of voter suppression. And I never saw that. So of course, Payne's book is not about food, so he doesn't take up this food story, but he brings it into the conversation because it's one of the first times the Mississippi Civil Rights Movement and also the movement in general at the national level had to really pause its efforts to take up this food question. In the past, they organized food programs, food drives, but never at this type of level because this moment in history in Greenwood had the potential of decimating the Mississippi civil rights movement in the Delta. So activists had to, so, so that's how I came to this food story, reading Charles Payne's piece and what activists called the Greenwood food blockade is what Payne talked about. And that was my first time even thinking about food. And that's like my window or my entry point into this larger food story. Uh, originally, I thought only, I was only going to write about the Greenwood food blockade but then once I started doing archival research in Jackson, I learned that this food story is much deeper than just food as a form of voter suppression. And that's how I got into the project reading Charles Payne's book. I mean, Charles Payne's book, I actually met him in 2018 before I graduated. He signed my book okay. and he was like, thanks for telling the next part of the story. And I was like, oh, thank you. I'm so honored. So, you know, I'm so grateful that you're here. Um, I kind of fanned out on Charles Payne because his book was so important. I mean, he was probably like surprised that someone was reading his book some 30 years later. And I was like, yeah, like your book is really, really important. So yeah. that's how I discovered the first part. My entry point into the food story is the Greenwood food blockade. Mm -hmm. I love that for so many reasons. I mean, first, you know, how must it feel that someone is reading your work, like you said, 30 years later and really taking, paying close attention, right, to what you've written and carrying on part of that research. Like that has to be really exciting, but then also exciting for you to find something, a connection to something that you had already been really passionate about, right? Mm -hmm. This specific nexus of food, justice, race. Mm -hmm. um, and so that had to be an exciting discovery too, even though it was wasn't much, but enough to say, wait a minute, there has to be more to there this story. No, no, right. I mean, because it's, I, I, so now me and my advisor, even my committee members, we laugh about it now because back then we honestly didn't know where my dissertation was going. Uh, we, it was only 10 pages in Payne's book. And I was, and I was like, I know there's something more, but they were like, you know, can you find anything? So then I did my comps. And I use all secondary sources and they were, I, for, you know, we're, we're not historians, so secondary sources are fine. But my committee was like, no, you need primary sources. We need to figure out what's going on. And one of my committee members, Anneliwe Rooks, uh, who's now the chair of Black Studies at uh, Africana Studies at Brown University, she sent me an email, like a random email on a, like a random Friday. was like, hey, the Megar Merle Evers uh, Institute is sponsoring fellows to come down and do research and they want upper level graduate students or junior faculty members. And she was like, FYI, it's just an impassing. And I applied for it and I got it. And that's when I went to Mississippi that summer, uh, right after, after after reading Payne's piece a year later, going to Mississippi and doing archival work to study the Greenwood food blockade opened up many, many doors. And that's when I started learning there's more to the story. But initially when it was a dissertation idea, we didn't know where this project was going because all I had was 10 pages in one book. And then I read John Denver's book and other books were recounting the same story over and over and over again, but it wasn't enough, you know, for a dissertation project. Right. You know, the other part of this kind of entryway for you that I, I really appreciate hearing is how you also had folks around you who are really supportive and saying, no, there's there's more to this story and you got to go find it. And we're also yes. going to help you go find it and let you know about different resources. And again, just thinking about 
how making those connections to something that happened um, in the 60s, but then also how we see it reoccurring and still present today, um, yes. both in the ways that food can be used as a weapon, but also how food can be used um, towards liberation. And yes. so yes. you mentioned the Greenwood Food Blockade. Could you tell our listeners a little bit more about exactly what that was and what was happening at that time? Yeah, so so the Greenwood Food Blockade is this event that that, that happens quietly. And now that in this conversation, I, I've never thought a lot more about like how to introduce the blockade itself because it's one of those moments in history that it happens. And if you're not paying attention or you don't have access to a newspaper, you even know this thing is happening. So in 1962, uh, so Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, had started their, their movement work in Macomb, Mississippi. So their Southern work uh, after the Greensboro um, Woolworth counter sit-in um, once the movement started, the student movement started spreading across, the stick movement started spreading across the South, their first time being in Mississippi was actually in Macomb, Mississippi in around 1960, 1961. But they wanted to move into what we call the Delta or the Mississippi Delta or the Yazoo Mississippi Delta. It depends on what part of the area you're in, what you call it. And you're, you're in Memphis, so you know, people argue that the Delta starts oh, uh, yeah. in the lobby of the Peabody and then goes right into Vicksburg, Catfish Row. So it's like, so, so when SNCC moves into the Delta, they they move from Macomb to the Delta around 1962 because they want to show that if we can overcome racism or voter suppression in the Delta of Mississippi, then we can do it nationally. So SNCC sent majority of all its resources to Mississippi, particularly to Greenwood, Mississippi, in 1962. And what's interesting about Greenwood, Mississippi, was that SNCC places headquarters there for a year to do their voter registration drive, but also Greenwood was also the headquarters of the White Citizens Council. The Mississippi's were the South's emblematic white supremacist organization. So when SNCC gets there in 1962, there is this, this high levels of opposition. I mean, violent opposition, of course, you have burning of buildings, um, the kidnapping of, of people, the, the violence towards the injuries, the jailings, there's a lot of things going on there. And, and so, so Greenwood becomes like this epicenter for both this battle between uh, proponents of black freedom and opponents of black freedom. So this struggle happens in 1962 and, and, and while all this, this violence, physical violence, structural violence is happening, activists are still organizing. They're still knocking on doors. But they're not organizing in like this urban conversation. They're organizing in the rural. So majority of the black, black people who are living around Greenwood or in Black Greenwood are attached to the plantation economy of the region. They're sharecroppers or they're day laborers. So their lives are basically controlled by the white political and white economic structure of Greenwood or LaFleur County where Greenwood is located. So as activists are organizing more, there, there, there's a meet so in so 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 as they're organizing these rural black communities of sharecroppers and day laborers, what ends up happening is that the day the the, the food realities of this particular group of people in Greenwood or, or LaFleur County, their food realities are shaped by what is known as the federal surplus commodities program. What we would call government cheese, government peanut butter, uh, government canned meat. So when people think about the federal surplus commodities program, no one calls it that. The government calls it that, but people just call it the free food program. Uh, once a month, folks will go down to the county courthouse and get supplemental foods, essentially supplement their diets. But for poor rural Black people who were attached to the plantation economy, the government food program was basically the only way they got food when there was no cotton crop in the ground. So every year around the winter time, they would depend on that a lot because there was no cotton. And essentially, if there's no cotton in the ground, they're not needed because their bodies are designed as so once. So their bodies were the original machines. Mm -hmm. So in so in November 1962, as the movement is, is, is gaining traction in Greenwood, a meeting is called to revisit the July decision to not have the federal surplus commodities program um, um, that year. So. But what's interesting about it is that they get here in November and they're revisiting it because they know that wintertime is coming and day laborers and sharecroppers are going to need food to make it to the next cotton season. Mm -hmm. 
Again, it's not designed to feed them to keep them to be nutritionally adequate. It's actually designed to keep them alive just enough time to get them to the next cotton season. So, so, so a meeting is called by the LaFleur County Board of Supervisors to revisit this program. And they decided to hold a meeting, uh, I want to say around November 9th. Uh, November 9th, yeah. And and SNCC observes that they call this meeting to decide the, the future of this federal surplus commodities program, but no black people are allowed to attend it. Like mm-hmm. no black person is allowed. It's only white people are allowed to come, white community members, but also the white county board of supervisors. So then this public meeting having a conversation discussing a program that literally impacts 90% of the participants are poor rural black people who are sharecroppers or day laborers or just poor people who have now moved into Greenwood. So at this meeting, they decide to dismantle the federal food program. And on the surface in the newspaper, it's like LaFleur County decides not to have a federal surplus commodities program this year. On the surface, it's read that way, but activists saw that as a clear indication that the rules of the civil rights movement have changed. Mm -hmm. They have now placed food at the center of the movement because this is a program where if Black people have the ability to vote, then they could be at those types of meetings because the decision for only white people to attend it was also those who were able to vote and participate in civic life. So activists already knew what was happening because why would you have this? Why would you just be on a program that you know impacts poor rural black people, but you're upset because poor rural black people are now trying to register to vote or, or they're attempting to register to vote. Mm-hmm. So that meeting, at the end of that meeting, that was the onset of the Greenwood food blockade because activists saw this. This is not just some decision that's made behind closed doors. In fact, you're trying to starve the very group of people we're trying to organize to liberate themselves. And that mm-hmm. is the beginning of the Greenwood food blockade in November of 1962. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that context and that history. Because like you said, even if maybe we stumbled across, you know, something that was talking about the Greenwood food blockade without understanding, you know, the time period, the context, the relationships, right? Who people are, um, the structure of the city. We wouldn't really understand the significance of this decision. And so I think that's so important to understand what the context was. The other piece that I find so important is because this is happening in a rural area and so much that we think about in our kind of historical memory of the civil rights movement is happening in very urban areas. And that's often think about, um, you know, every all different types of organizing, different types of resistance, even retaliation we're thinking about within the urban context. But this this focus on rural, I think, is so important. And, you know, as I was reading this chapter, it also made me think about um, sociology, our discipline, and yeah. how the focus on rural was actually something that was emphasized very early, um, but then kind of fell away as we focused our attention more on what's happening in urban areas. And so this just reminded me of, again, how important it is for us to understand what's happening in the rural context, both historically, but then also contemporarily as well. And so I was really interested in that. And because, you know, we're talking about the Greenwood food blockade and it being used by the white power structure as a way to really punish and discipline black folks who are trying to register to vote. But again, it just made me think immediately of like 2021, when we see Governor Brian Kemp of Georgia signing in um, the Election Integrity Act quote unquote, um, making it, you know, with these different provisions around passing out food and water. And it just like, that is the first thing that came to my mind when I was reading this. Always I talk about how the past is always present and we see some of these same tactics being used over and over again. Um, But let's not leave us hanging there at, you know, the decision that was made at that November meeting. But what was the response from activists and organizers in Greenwood, but also in other parts of the country? Yeah, no, thank you. Like I, uh, I'm glad you asked the the question, like the responses, because I think like as I was writing the book, it's, it's I as I was writing page by page of that particular chapter, because because that chapter was was one. It was a dissection chapter, 
Then it became a paper. And then after I wrote the paper, doing more research, I discovered even more uh, information about the responses. And I, it's, it's amazing. So, so about a month later, uh, Bob Moses, uh, Robert Paris Moses, who passed away about two years ago, uh, one of the architects of, of, of SNCC, um, he decides to write a letter to the North, to, to students in the North about, hey, we need food. I mean, I mean, that's the best way of saying it. I, I, it's a longer letter. There's a lot of stuff there. But basically what he's saying is that these people need food. Like, I've never seen this type of hunger in my life is what he's saying to a group of people that he knows, particularly in, uh, at the University of Michigan. So this letter kind of initiates the responses to the Greenwood Food Blockade, which the response ends up evolving. So it starts off as a letter writing campaign. So what we so today we was just sent a text blast. Like, hey, people <laughs> need food, pull up, we're gonna be on the corner of so-and-so, that's where we're gonna be at, bring us food. But what, what they do is that they start sending these similar letters all across the nation because they're like, this is, the, so they connect what the lower floor County Board of Supervisors did at that November meeting to how food is being used as a weapon. They don't say it that way, but it's just what they're saying is that now that food is a part of this equation, how can we tell people, how can we protect people from this type of oppression? Because we can protect them from physical violence by hiding them. We can keep them safe in cars. But how do we keep them full with food when the their main food source has been cut off? So, so, so they initiate what becomes known as the Food for Freedom program. But it's much more than just a food program. In fact, it's a multi-state, massive, translocal, uh, I call it this interactive food network. Because essentially those letter writing campaign evolves into SNCC taking this up at the national level. So you have people like uh, William Bill Mahoney, who was the secretary of SNCC at the time, who's working out of New York, attempting to organize at the national level to get food to Mississippi. So essentially this, this massive network from New York City, um, Atlanta, Georgia, Iowa City, Iowa, uh, Chicago becomes a very important part because Dick Gregory, uh, a you know, prominent Black comedian uh, who is a part of the Friends of SNCC group in Chicago, ends up becoming a central figure in this whole story, in the Food of Freedom side of the story. So the response is this much from people from Compton, California. You have people in um, uh, Louisville, Kentucky, just all trying to bring food. So basically they are bombarding the Mississippi Delta with food. And in the Delta, they set up these three different hubs in Coloma County and Clarksdale. Um, Fannie Hamer transforms her home into what we would now call a food hub in Ruleville, which is Sunflower County. And then, of course, Greenwood becomes the headquarters because Greenwood is uh, at the Wesley United Methodist Church in downtown Greenwood ends up becoming the hub in Greenwood. So this hub is is where so all the food comes into Mississippi. It goes to Clarkdale, Clarksdale to Vera Pegues Beauty Shop. She works with Ann Henry. So she becomes a central figure around the logistics because she's basically one of the organizers of trying to get food into these particular areas. Because while the Greenwood Food Blockade is something that they were attaching this program to, similar instances were happening in Sunflower County. They were happening in Coloma County. They were happening in Bolivar County. I mean, because once Greenwood did it, other board of supervisors recognized, oh, so this is how we can get people out of our, our county, just starve them. Mm. It's disgusting at best it, insidious this is ridiculous but this is the this is the, this is the kind of thinking the mechanics of the greenwood food blockade but activists organized this massive this food program that ends up becoming the catalyst for one of the largest voter registration efforts in history in the south at that time they end up organizing they end up registering attempting to register some 500 people in a matter of weeks Mm. So, so December it starts, but it doesn't really pick up until February. And February, March, and April is like the height of the response to the Greenwood Food Blockade. But it's not just a food program. It's not just a food network. They're also in D.C. lobbying to the Secretary of Agriculture saying, you have the pen that can bring this federal food program back. Because mm -hmm. while we're doing this work, these people still need these supplemental foods because they've grown accustomed to living with this, what we now would call an emergency food program. So mm -hmm. it's not only trying to get food to people, it's also trying to get legislative legislative power to reinstate the program. So in April of 1963, they're able to get the program reinstated, but they get the program reinstated 
not because the LaFour County Board of Supervisors wanted to actually bring the program back. Federal officials had to come to Greenwood, Mississippi and have a meeting with the LaFour County Board of Supervisors and tell them whether you're gonna bring the program back or we're gonna bring it back. And one thing about Mississippi, then and now is that they do not like federal intervention. They don't they don't want the federal government in their affairs. So instead of allowing the government to bring it back, they succumb to the actual federal government. Interestingly though, they didn't pay for the program. The federal mm-hmm. government ended up paying to bring the program back and they allowed that kind of intervention because Mississippi doesn't like federal intervention unless they can control what type of federal intervention happens in that particular state. So, so all I can say is that the response was this Food for Freedom campaign that essentially dissolves after they're able to get the, this federal surplus commodities program back. And then, of course, SNCC then automatically pivots back to full voter registration. So mm-hmm. it's like this food interlude almost that happens because they're like, we can't get folks to register because they ain't got nothing to eat. So mm-hmm. we got to get people food. But it's not necessarily only to feed them. It's also food to get them back in line to then register to vote. So they recognize the power of food, but not food as a way for Black people to control their lives, but food as a catalyst to promote voter registration efforts. And that's mm. what happens. So the Grateful Black Day ends with, with, with the Food for Freedom program being able to navigate both DC, but also navigate the politics and logistics of food production or food distribution um, in the region. Mm. Bobby, there was so much in the, oh my goodness. Like first and foremost, I think like, wow, thanks so much for bringing this part of the civil rights movement to the forefront, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because again, I think this is something a lot of folks don't know. Um, and we can think about because of the way we tell the civil rights movement story to ourselves, you yes. know, this focus on things like voter registration, we, you know, we understand that. But as you just said, you know, food, not just as a means to ensure that people can now go register right. to vote, right. Right. but 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 through this Food for Freedom initiative, we're also seeing how food can be a site for liberation and yeah. for collective freedom, which you talk about um, throughout the book. Um, and folks will have to grab the book to get the rest of this juicy, yeah. juicy story. Well, well, you know, also, I, I, but it's something you said earlier. You just said it really, really registered with me was, was when you said also it's like food as a site of liberation. And I think that's the key point because honestly, the federal surplus commodities food pro- program was not an adequate program. Mm-hmm. It wasn't nutritious. It was not designed to ensure that people, but people's bodies fully developed, their minds developed. It was designed to keep calories. It was designed to, be, to keep poor people alive. So what happened? So the food freedom program also gave us a glimpse of what I was, what I theorized as emancipatory food power uh, in the book. So take a step back one. Theoretically, the idea of food as a weapon is known as food power. Legal scholars, historians, local scientists say food power is when food is used as a weapon at the international level. I transpose that idea into the local everyday black into local everyday black life, and I discovered that black folks weren't just being passive and letting food be weaponized against them. They also use food as a way to emancipate themselves from those structures and systems, which is what I theorize as emancipatory food power. So I'd like to say is that I'm so glad you said food is a site of liberation, because in fact the Food for Freedom program also gave people access to foods they wouldn't normally have access to through the federal surplus commodities program. But activists weren't thinking about that because our goal for the civil rights movement is not to feed people per se. We want people to control their lives, but control it through voting, through education, through access to public accommodations. And those vehicles will be used to get people food. But what happens when those vehicles are, are manipulated and then food becomes a part of that conversation? And that's what I'm doing in chapter one. Mm-hmm. I love this focus on food because again, I'm I'm just a food lover, but also because in the book you make and, and what you just said now too, you make this very important point about how food is it 
it shapes our destiny, both very yeah. fit in the physical sense, right? It shapes us. Um, but the foods we have access to, the foods that people think we should have access to, you talk about that a lot in the book, again, um, about the food choices that were available to Black folks at this time, but then also having control over what's on your plate. Um, right. Control meaning being able to go into the grocery store and buy certain foods or mm -hmm. having access to those foods and awareness that, you know, certain foods exist and being able to even plant, you know, your own crops. And so I think that's so central um, to this story. And also a reminder, because again, just seeing some of these same echoes today, when we think about food deserts, um, yeah. or even, you know, where uh, fast food restaurants are located, right? And a lot of research is looking at that. And again, how these food choices are shaping our destinies. Yes. Yeah. No, and I, I, that, that's a great way to put it, because it really is a matter of life and death. And mm -hmm. I think because of our relationship with food today, like, for example, we're on the, you know, we're, we're, we're having this conversation right now. If I wanted to DoorDash food for us to have this conversation, I can leave on my phone right now, put your address in, and literally we're talking right now, and food will be dropped off at your front door within a matter of 30 to 45 minutes. And because our relationship is that with food, we don't think about how serious food is. And that food is, a, the, the ways in which we eat is attached to a food system. So also what I wanted to do in the book was thinking about food choices and the food we eat that's on our plate, whether the grocery store, the restaurant, Uber Eats, however we get our food, is also a part of a system. And we have to think about it at a systems level, uh, at, a, at a system level. We think about the education as a system. We think about criminal justice as a system. We think about policing. Everything is about systems. But then when we think about food, it's just food. It's mundane. It's in passing. And, I'm, and I hope that the book shows that it's just not something that's in passing. In fact, it's attached to, it's a system. And within a system, there are power dynamics that shape the flow and the webs of how people move. And that's why I put power into the conversation because I see my book as bringing power into focus of mm. when we think about food. Yes, I mean... And that becomes so clear, even clearer in chapter two, when you're talking about the Lewis Grocer Company. And I don't even want us to get into too many details of that because folks are going to have to buy the book to get that Got story. But when okay. I tell you just again, that makes it so clear how food it, you know, is used by folks in power, right? And is part of a system that can control our lives, that folks get rich off, that folks get rich of off of our lack of access, intentional lack yeah. of access. And you talk about different moves that were made by the Lewis Grocery Company in conjunction with folks who are in elected positions of power. But again, I don't want us to get into, into that too much um, today um, because I actually want to go back to something you mentioned, which was as you were talking about the Food for Freedom program and how it was being organized you know, at the center of who was organizing this and distributing this were Black women. And that's something else that I really appreciated about your book is how much, you know, attention you are giving to the Black women who were leading this charge of distribution, of organizing. And again, oftentimes the civil rights movement, that story is told yes. with Black men very much at the forefront, which is yep. true. But then it's also true that Black women were doing a lot of important work. So I'm wondering if you could just um, talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. Thank you. Because writing bringing in Black women into the Greenwood, we're not bringing in because they were already there, but documenting Black women's efforts to the Greenwood Food Blockade was, 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 was challenging. And not challenging because it was challenging because of sources. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I write in the book that many of the women who were doing this work are known by name. So the, the, the picture I use in chapter one of a woman by the name of Miss Ella Edwards, Mrs. Ella Edwards, um, I got that picture from the New York Times. That was one of the only pictures ever taken during what we know now as the Greenwood Food Blockade. And we don't know a lot about Ella Edwards. I remember seeing some of the notes that Carl Sidden used when he was taking those pictures. He described her as an older woman who was married and she was just working at the, the program. But Ella Edwards' picture is so powerful because it shows her in the basement, in the Sunday school room, organizing all these cans of food to hand out to people who were in dire need to eat. And it showed, but her being also located, the picture, she's also by herself. 
And I think that's interesting too. And I don't know whether that's just what Carl wanted or no one was around, but we know why women were, it was not a lot of women who were doing this work, but the women that were there were taking on a huge, uh, this was a huge undertaking because you have tons of food coming into the Delta. And because the gender nature of food, food is coded as what we as sociologists call women's work, women's work or, or invisible work. And this invisible work that we're seeing happen is so powerful because these women are working across, again, we don't have cell phones now. So I'm not texting Ella Edwards from Coleman County saying, I'll be there in an hour, had the food ready. No, they're really operating this, this network, this community-based work they're doing it's so powerful because they're working at different levels. So Vera Pagui, who's a beautician slash activist with NLACB slash community woman slash uh, all the all the above, she's doing everything in Columbia County and Clarksdale. She's working at the regional level. So the Food for Freedom program works re state, nationally, regional, and then local. So Vera Pagui is so William Bill Mahoney's at the national level of SNCC doing the work. But at the in Mississippi, women are taking on actually getting food delivered to the people. Fannie Lou Hamer, who now we know a lot more about, not only did she create the Freedom Farms Cooperative in the late 1960s in uh, Ruleville, she also transformed her home into a food hub. So some activists remember going into her home, it's food everywhere, like food stacked up on the side of the doors. She got food on the porch, just in the backyard, because she understood, Black women understood how intimate food struggles were. And many times they were, whether voluntarily or involuntarily, in charge of making sure that their families had food. So that every day, the, the, I, the, this motherhood connection there translates into the work they're doing. But I want, but I, but I, the gender, I'm gonna say it this way the gender nature of food is important because it's something that they were already doing in their everyday lives, but it also enabled them to be leaders in the movement. And many studies of the civil rights movement often want to talk about how Black women took on roles that men had. Oh, they were presidents, they were leading organizations, but they also were leaders in their own right. And in fact, they were the food leaders of the movement and it gave them a chance to control. They were developing contracts. There's no, uh, they were developing transportation routes. They were at airports picking up food. Uh, they were on the side of the road meeting with a truck, throw the food back there in the middle of the night because the Food for Freedom program was also targeted by the police. Mm -hmm. So many people were coming out of Memphis into the Delta. People were being stopped, literally right there, you know, right there, but it's on 55 or on the Blues Highway 61 coming out of South Memphis. They were literally right there waiting for food to come across. And many times they confiscated the food. But mm -hmm. Black women were able to subvert all of that to ensure that food was placed into the hands of the people. And I couldn't. I couldn't write about the Greenwood Food Blockade without bringing that up. Because as I was reading it, I was reading Jet Magazine. Black women were at the forefront of that. When the, even Jet Mag, like even the Jet Magazine covered the Greenwood Food Blockade. I mean, people, it's it's there, and mm -hmm. so that's why I had to do a lot of uh, the evidence is there because this is not something. It happened quietly, but it's also on the radar of the black press. And the Black press emphasized the role of Black women like Vera Pagui, uh, Ella Edwards, uh, 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 Bessie Broom. Again, but as I said in the book, a lot of these women are only known by name. But I had to name them. It's not only about just knowing their lives. That's someone else's project. We can talk about who they were, where they were born, what they did. But I wanted to name them to show that Black women were doing, they come into the story as something that we tend to throw to the side because food is not a part of the story, but they use food as a site of leadership, community leadership. And that's what I wanted to show, particularly in chapter one, when bringing Vera Pagui, Ella Edwards, and those people, and Fannie Hamer into the story. And I, and, I, and I dealt with them as they came into the story. It mm -hmm. wasn't something that I, I didn't want, I didn't put anyone quote unquote, at the forefront of those stories because I wanted to bring them in organically as they showed up as I was reading history, how they showed up in the story. And but, but you see how they show up and then they go away. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I want to deal with that at some point because they go away because the food story goes away. And if food goes away, then women are automatically get going away as well because they tend to code food work as women's work. Mm. I just appreciated so much learning the names of the women who were very integral to ensuring that the food for 
freedom program was successful. It wouldn't have happened without these women. And like you said, they were relying on the the networks that they already had, whether informal or formal. And they were also relying on that knowledge, that everyday knowledge, that everyday everyday practice, right, of of their lives to really institute this and to do so rather seamlessly. You know, all of these things are happening quickly, right? There's not a lot of time. I mean, like literally November is the meeting by February, they have they have an entire multi-state food network happening. I mean, they're having concerts in Compton, and and the int- uh, and the entry fee is food. Like it's bringing mm-hmm. food so we can get to Mississippi. They have Compton. I mean, and and I um I gave a talk a couple of months ago, and I finally put an actual. I actually used a map this time, and actually was able to show, and it blew my mind because I write about it. But seeing it geographically, and I had lines coming from different states into the Delta, I was like, oh my gosh, this is huge. And and we can't even do that. We can barely feed neighborhoods today. Um, like, like we can barely get folks, uh, you're in Memphis from South Memphis, North Memphis, and get, we can barely, I mean, I'm south of Chicago, but I'm in Champaign. I can barely get people in Champaign or Banff to connect across less than 15 minutes away to do this. So I was, and to, and to know that Black women orchestrated or mm-hmm. co-orchestrated, this shows that it also helps us rethink our ideas of leadership. Yes. In the, and what a leader is. And while Dr. King and Bob Moses and those men were important to the movement in their own right, as you said earlier, which is true, Black men played a major role in the movement. We're not yeah. saying that's not true. But what we are saying is that Black women played a role a key role in sustenance. And while we might deem that or call that as women's work, it's a really important job because it fueled the movement and enabled them to then produce one of the largest voter registration efforts at the time in American history. Yeah, that is so amazing. Now, you mentioned it earlier. I know you talk a little bit about it in the book about these different levels of organizing, also being able to, you know, very materially put food Mm -hmm. in the hands of people, but then also doing this work on a policy level and going to D.C. and going to, you know, our nation's capital and and agitating for different types of legislation. And you mentioned in the book um, that, um, SNCC was trying to put pressure on agencies um, such as the USDA to work with rural Black agricultural workers. And I'm wondering, did that happen? I know you also mentioned in the book that activists organized Black farmers in Mississippi and across the South to run for county offices in the USDA's Agricultural Stabilization and Conservation Service Agency. And I'm wondering if any of those attempts, you know, led to any changes, led to, to um rural Black agricultural workers actually, you know, being in conversation uh, with these different levels of government or different organizations? Yes, yes, yes. So so the short answer is yes, they, they, SNCC initiated some of those efforts, but SNCC uh, never fully took up the agrarian question, if you will, or the food question. They never really took it up in ways that could have been beneficial in context. Because also, this is 1963. Right. And anyone who knows history, two years later, SNCC is getting ready to disband. I mean, 65, SNCC is trying to figure out which way are we going to go. There's a mass exodus. And then by the late 60s, SNCC is dissolved and gone away. And activists are doing their own things. So that's also just provide like that. Like in context, 63 is a pivotal year. Because also, it's the March on Washington happens in August. So the movement becomes preoccupied with other things that kind of then kind of moves the the food issue, the ag issue, back out of focus. Um, It's what some people say when the cameras left Mississippi, people just didn't pay attention to it. And in Mississippi, ag and food was critically important. Because also, we said earlier, there's a rural character to the Mississippi Civil Rights Movement. So you have to understand reality to understand why food and ag is so important. So they were organizing ASCS boards and some black people were successful in organizing and SNCC members were a part of that or former members were a part of that uh, but also black farmers um, think, think about Holmes County now right right off 55 uh, south of Grenada Holmes County was extremely important because Holmes County had so I think one of the largest places where black people own land farmers and they would house civil rights activists on their land 
So yeah. Holmes County becomes important, which is kind of on the periphery. Parts of Holmes County is in the Delta, but some of it's not, you know, in, in the actual area people call the yeah, Mississippi Delta. All of this can be argued, obviously, but Holmes County becomes important because that's where they were organizing a lot of these ASCS uh, board members. And they were successful in some ways, but also doing that in Mississippi is, 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 is tricky because what people don't know about Mississippi during that time is that you have people like Senator James Eastland, U.S. Representative Jamie Whitten, and John Stennis. Those three men basically ran the federal government. Whitten and Eastland in particular ran agriculture and food. Eastland is a co-author of the food stamp bill. Jamie Whitten basically controlled the USDA's budget from 1947-49 to 1994. The man Ooh. dies. Well, the man dies, literally holding the purse strings of the USDA, and they're in Mississippi. And he's also the representative of the Delta. So you're trying to organize this, but it's all under his power. So I'm glad you paid, you brought attention to like these multi-levels of organizing. But Mississippi becomes a very important case because, yes, they organize the ASCS boards. And there are books, that talk, articles that talk about that stuff. Um, but it's never a central agenda of of a moving activist per se. Mm -hmm. You know, it is unbelievable to me that somebody could have, as you were mentioning, some of the different elected officials mm -hmm. that were controlling the USDA, controlling our food future as a nation, and for folks yeah. that have been in power for decades um, and really shaping what we even think of as um, SNAP, Supplemental Nutrition, right, mm -hmm. or food stamps, as we often call it, and the way that we think about food assistance through very racialized terms. And again, throughout the book, I was writing notes about how some of those same arguments against food stamps and particularly racialized arguments against who uses food stamps are, are so much to our present day. And it makes sense because we have folks who from Mississippi in power for decades, literally controlling, you know, our food present and food futures. Yeah, no, and I thank you for that's the hardest part about writing this the historical book. Well, doing the historical work is that trying to make those connections was the hardest part. And I, and I thank you for like saying you were taking notes and connected to today because I'm always thinking about how does the, because in writing it, I didn't write it necessarily to inform today. I wrote it as a way to bring food to the forefront of the civil rights movement and to argue that this food story is ongoing, is active and even happening today. But I thank you for the, the connection to Georgia earlier then the mm -hmm. connection to, and also we're coming up on a farm building year. Uh, mm -hmm. Next year, the farm bill is coming out. And then also food stamps will be 60 years old next year. Wow. So this is a very important time to start thinking about how the discourses mm -hmm. are, are related and similar. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, also, we can think about, you know, here in Memphis with expansion of Blue Oval and how a lot of Black farmers' lands have been taken through eminent domain. And again, right. just pieces, you know, of of this story we continue to see play out today because some of those same tools, the way food is used as a weapon, but also how how food and land is used as a space of, of liberation, we see continued in our present day. So absolutely, there's, and look, we only got to talk about a little bitty piece of this <laughs> book and we're, look, we're our time is already coming to an end. I know, end. I see it. I was like, I, I, I was trying to cut some of my comments. I was like, let me yes because that's how good this book is I mean it's just so rich and it's you know as someone who loves to learn and loves to learn particularly about this region there's so much in here where I'm like wow I never knew this but again that I'm also making connections to present day so I know for listeners you're like wait a minute there's more there's so much more you got to get the book because your mind will be absolutely blown um Bobby thank you so much for joining us this morning it has been such a pleasure Thank you. No, I've enjoyed it. I appreciate you taking the time to, to do this. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much to Dr. Bobby J. Smith. His book is Food Power Politics, the food story of the Mississippi Civil Rights Movement. 
I'm not sure if there's anything that excites me more than food. Um, so you have to know that this book was so phenomenal. It was such a great read to learn about this food story, something that I had no idea about. And I'm betting that for a lot of you all, this is your first time as well to hear about the Greenwood Food Blockade and the Food for Freedom campaign. When I tell you that was only chapter one of the book. So there's so much more that Bobby talks about in food power politics. And when I tell you, I was making so many connections to things that are happening in our present day this book helped me understand a lot of different components of the civil rights movement, especially what it looked like in a rural area, because so much of what we think about, learn about, or you know, have in our historical memory of the civil rights movement is very much centered around these urban stories. So this book is so invaluable for a variety of different reasons. And I have to tell you that chapter two, and I'll just tell you the title so you get a sense of what it's about. The title of chapter two is another kind of oppression civil rights food stamps and the segronomics of the lewis grocer company be prepared to have your mind blown because when i tell you this chapter i i was like oh my goodness i cannot believe what is happening but you have to pick up the book to find out more. And trust me, you will want to know more. Obviously, it's talking about grocery stores. It's also talking about food stamps, legislation, and the power of grocery stores to control the destinies of Black folks in the Delta um, during the civil rights era. And again, you'll see so many connections to how we think about food today, um, where food is present, where food is absent in our communities as well. And I don't want you to think that the book stops there because remember, we're talking about food both as a weapon, but also as a tool of resistance. Chapter three, black food, black jobs, emancipatory food power and the North Bolivar County Farm Cooperative. And then chapter four, from civil rights to food justice, black youth and the North Bolivar County Good Food Revolution, bringing this food story up into the present day. Food power politics covers so much, again, starting at that 1960s Greenwood food blockade and then bringing up to our current moment and this youth-led food justice movement. Trust me, you will not be able to put this book down. Well, this has been Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa. I'm here every Monday morning having smart, fun conversations about topics that you didn't even know you were interested in, but I'm betting that you are very much keyed into and want to know more now. I want to leave you with this positive note, this reminder, each and every day, you get to decide. Yes, you. You get to decide what type of day it's going to be, how you're going to show up in this world, and over time, it is those daily choices that create your life. So what type of life are you creating? Well, whatever type of life it is, I hope Let's Grab Coffee is a part of it. Make sure you're subscribed to Let's Grab Coffee in podcast format and also on YouTube so you never miss a conversation, but so you can also dig back into these conversations because I know that Bobby was sharing some facts that you were like, hold up, I didn't know that. I need to listen to that again and I need to share it with a friend. So make sure that you do. And I will see you back here next Monday morning.